I needed to be right for two reasons. One is I just didn't want to be wrong. And the other is if I was right, democracy is in better shape. You know what I'm saying? Like it's nice to not be wrong, but also it's nice to know democracy is doing what it's supposed to do. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's episode is a candid conversation with my first return guest, author and lawyer Terry Canefield. Terry has published over a dozen books, as well as articles, essays, stories, and legal briefs over the past 30 years. Her political analysis has been used in the Washington Post, CNN, NBC, and most major news outlets. She is also one of my go-to lawyers because of her brilliant insight on legal and constitutional matters. Terry is a careful and thoughtful thinker who doesn't get caught up in the drama of a moment. When we last had her on the show, she was the one reminding us that just because we weren't seeing the results we wanted in the timing we'd like didn't mean that the wheels of justice weren't turning. Despite all the crowing for locking Trump up or insisting the DOJ tell us what they were investigating, Terry has always stood firm on the idea that the fact that we are seeing so little is actually good news for the health of the rule of law. She stressed how important it was to not rush the process or abandon the rules simply because we wanted certain results. One party has made it very clear that they're ready to abandon democracy and the rule of law, and Terry was equally clear that we shouldn't help them do that by abandoning the rule of law ourselves. No matter how hungry we are for justice, we have to play by the rules if we want to keep living in a country with rules. Five months later, we can see that she was right when so many others were wrong that Merrick Garland has been working diligently and quietly to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and now we can see that justice is on its way. Despite the fact that we still know so little about what's going on, I'm having Terry on today to talk about the search of Mar-a-Lago and what it means for the country, the rule of law, and the Republican enablers and justice itself. So without further ado, please welcome lawyer, author, and my favorite social media legal expert, Terry Canefield. Welcome back, Terry. Hi, thank you for having me again. Oh, well, thank you for coming. You know, I love you and I love it when I'm seeing you vindicated here because you have been saying the same thing all along and now we're starting to see some action. Um, So let's get right into it. On Monday, August 8th, the FBI, federal warrant in hand, served Donald Trump's Florida home Mar-a-Lago to attempt to recover top secret and sensitive documents he was holding there. Documents that did not belong to him, that his lawyers had previously signed an affidavit that said he had returned, and documents that were not properly stored to reflect the critical nature of the national security to America. As I said in a recent rant, the FBI serves search warrants every day. This is not some brand new thing that we're doing. Warrants are needed when law enforcement has to move quickly on a criminal investigation because they're concerned that sensitive materials might be in danger of being moved or concealed or destroyed. And a search warrant doesn't necessarily indicate the accusation of a crime or the subject's guilt, but it does indicate a sense of urgency because it's only used when law enforcement can prove that a subpoena or a summons or a request isn't going to work. And in this case, that was the case. Now, You recently did a breakdown on your blog at terrycanefield.com about the insane events surrounding this warrant being served, which you called perhaps the weirdest week in American presidential history, which (laughs) I thought was exactly right. And your post attempted to answer two questions. One, why did Trump tell everyone about the search when it could have been kept quiet? And two, knowing what we know now, why is the GOP continuing to rally around this quite obvious lawbreaker. So let's talk about that, right? What are your thoughts? Well, starting with the week, sort of the crazy (laughs) things that happened. Uh, Well, after the search, nobody talked about it at the time. It didn't go public. The DOJ didn't announce anything. It could have been very quiet. But Trump went public. And he didn't just go public, but he called it a raid and a siege and his home was being occupied, almost like a military occupation. And um, this was sort of annoying because what really happened was that they showed up with the search warrant. They were allowed in. They looked for the stuff they needed and they stayed to what the search warrant indicated they could take. They took the stuff that they needed that was rightfully theirs, um, belonged to the government, and they left. So it wasn't anything like a raid or a, a military occupation. And so why did they go public with this? Well, oddly enough, we found out later um, which didn't surprise me. Um, we found out later that he was actually upbeat during this search. He was actually upbeat. This is the Washington Post. Um, 
I have a link on my website. The Washington Post reported that he was persuaded that the DOJ had overreached and that this would play into his hands politically. So he's complaining about it, but he's also feeling kind of like, ah, that they see they've done the wrong thing and it's going to make me look good and it's going to work in my favor. Well, when he complained about it, what he did is he is he tried to cast it as um, the and in fact, he said the left radical Democrats are after me. And because they're after me, they're after you. So it wasn't so much a complaint. It looks like a complaint. It wasn't so much a complaint as it was an attempt to create a media narrative that he believed would help him politically. He's been off stage. Nobody's been paying attention to him. DeSantis has been getting lots of attention. Now he believed that the DOJ overreached and that this is going to play into his hands. So he immediately cast it in public as they're coming against me. They're going to come against you. It's a, the radical left Democrats have, have targeted me. And he created what he likes, which is an us versus them, the bad, evil DOJ coming against me. And so now he's front and center and everybody has to take sides. Are you going to side with Donald Trump or are you going to side with the radical left Democrats? Well, now he's created an us versus them situation where he thinks everybody's going to come to his side. And he wasn't wrong about what the GOP leadership did. So what he did is he, he decided to cast the whole thing as a cultural war. And um, he's now back to the back to center stage. People were sure leading up to um, the release of the search warrant, people were sure that he really didn't want this released. Um, why would he want it released? Because it made him look bad. Um, but it turned out he did want it released. It is kind of a strange attitude considering the nature of the documents, right, that we know we're missing. I mean, this is sensitive, intelligent information. And it is kind of a weird attitude to be like, what? So I had it. So what? Like, it is a very odd combination. But if you're looking at it like he needed to get back to center stage, he needed to get back into the spotlight, he needed to make an us versus them narrative, then it makes a little more sense because it's not like the National Archives hadn't asked for these things back already. It's not like they hadn't even come to Mar-a-Lago to get them back already. So this isn't new. He also apparently, that was his first reaction, but then later this was compounded with some serious panic because he I should started, think so but not at first not at first and that's what was weird but it was later in the day it wasn't that much later that he panicked a little bit and thought oh my god are they really going to are they really going to prosecute me um he did apparently did not think this was possible now um i can tell you that people who are searched are very rattled afterwards that's generally what happens you're rattled afterwards it's it's really unnerving and um, but it wasn't until a little bit later that he started to panic a little bit and think, are they really, really going to come after me? But he didn't actually think so. But I, I think the two came together with go ahead and prosecute me. And then I become a, a victim. And yeah, big um, martyr. And then everybody has to rally behind me. So now nobody's going to think about DeSantis anymore. <laughs> Well, I'd love it if we didn't think about DeSantis anymore, but I, I don't think that's a possibility. Now, approving this search isn't the only thing Merrick Garland and the DOJ did that week, right? He indicted the four police officers connected with the shooting death of Breonna Taylor. The DOJ issued subpoenas to Pennsylvania lawmakers who tried to replace their electors with Trump electors. Um, there's at least three sealed indictments that have been filed that we don't even know about yet uh, with the Mar-a-Lago search. He's been really busy, Merrick Garland. Like every day there's a new thing that we hear that he's been working on quietly in the shadows, which is how it, justice should be done um, until they're ready to do something with it. And for many years, I mean, but at least for this past year, people on the left particularly have been insistent that Merrick Garland was dropping the ball, right? That he wasn't investigating Trump and that he was incompetent or he was a coward. Or if he was investigating Trump, then he should be saying so. But Garland always refused, citing the rule of law, right? And we now know that Trump is being investigated, not because Garland told us, but because Trump did, right? So right. what's your thought on that? Well, another thing we learned very recently was that Philbin and um, that Philbin was called before a grand jury about this matter last spring. And who is Philbin? He was the assistant, I think, White House counsel to Cipollone. Right. So, and Cipollone was also in front of a grand jury, but we don't actually know when. But think about this: last spring, 
Philbin was before a grand jury talking about this matter. Now, um, one of the questions I kept getting is, we know Merrick Garland isn't doing anything because if he was, we would hear about grand jury subpoenas. And what I said was, no, you only hear about grand jury subpoenas from people who talk about them. And the only people who talk about them, they're what we call hostile witnesses. They don't want to be there. They pro probably have criminal liability. But there are a lot of witnesses who are just delighted to go, um, who say, yeah, I'll, I'll go talk. A good pro tip rule of thumb, if there's, a, if there's a, um, an incident that's being invested as a crime and you were part of that, <laughs> and you are afraid you have criminal liability, it's really a bad idea to tick off the prosecutors. So some people who might have criminal liability and they're not sure and they want to try to get the best deal they can, they don't talk about it. But a witness who is happy to go talk about it won't tell us. So it turned out that while everybody was saying, well, we, don't, we know for sure there's no investigation because we'd hear about it from the grand jury subpoenas. Turns out Philbin was in front of a grand jury. So we don't know what's going on back there and we're not supposed to. No, we're like not supposed expression. to. Yeah, we're not supposed to know, right? But okay, so let's talk about those people were not talking, which they weren't supposed to do. They were happy to talk in grand juries, and then the Justice Department could move along. But let's talk about Mega World and their reaction to all of this. Right-wing media, Republican politicians, Trump world spokespeople, they're all out here attacking the Department of Justice now, right? Claims of witch hunts and political intimidation and saying it's all motivated by animosity and bad faith and, and they should all have a press conference to explain himself. He needed to explain himself. He needed to say why he was there. Release the search warrant. Prove what you're doing, um, which of course he doesn't have to do. And in many ways to be fair and apolitical, he absolutely shouldn't do, right? Lindsey Graham was insisting the DOJ and the FBI lay their cards on the table and Ted Cruz wrote in all caps, release the warrant now. And a bunch of right-wing people were saying, if they can do this to a former president, what can they do to you? You know, that the FBI is just compromised and planting evidence. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about defunding the FBI and everyone's a deep state actor and blah, blah, blah. And they really riled people up so much that in a day, they had someone physically opening fire on the FBI, right? This shooter who was at the Capitol on January 6th and very committed to true social and all the right-wing conspiracy theories wrote that the search of Mar-a-Lago was a call to arms and people needed to kill the enemy, who in this case was the FBI. And the police ended up shooting and killing this man as he tried to breach the FBI building in Ohio. You know, these are real world effects that these lies and propaganda and fear-mongering have on the world. And what's your thought about that? Well, okay, two things. I'm going to talk about, I guess, as you were talking, I got the idea to call this the great switcheroo. All um, right, let's do it. Great switcheroo. Great switcheroo. Um, I'm not usually good with slogans and stuff like that, but here we go. <laughs> the, great, the great switcheroo, but also a difference. So there was this great switcheroo. Let's talk about Trump critics versus Trump supporters. Okay. It's easier than left versus right or Democrat versus Republican. Okay, so prior to the search, the Trump critics were enraged with the DOJ. They were saying all the same things that MAGA world is saying now. They were saying, we don't know what's going on. He needs to tell us. He needs to. And then they were using these ridiculous arguments that the public has no faith. So he needs to restore faith by telling us what's going on. But the reason the public had no faith is because they were attacking the DOJ. So, so first they attacked the DOJ for a year. And then they say, well, the public now needs to be reassured that there is an investigation. They were demanding Trump critics as of two weeks ago, 10 days ago, seven days ago, um, we're demanding that Merrick Garland tell us that Trump is being investigated. Tell us what's going on. Now, boom, switch. Now there's a search. And suddenly, overnight, all of these people are now getting it. They, because a lot of things have happened this past week where Merrick Garland had to explain why he can't give in to the right wing who wants, or the Trump supporters. Okay, so great switcheroo. So now, after the search, we have the Trump supporters saying exactly the same things that many of the Trump critics were saying before. Put your cards on the table. We need to know. Don't, you know, da 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 da. But here's the difference. The difference is that when the Trump critics were attacking the DOJ, it didn't incite violence. Like, what are we going to do? Go, like, hit him with our purses? You know, it's like, we're not, I don't have, 
I don't have a, 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 what are those guns called? You know, I mean, we're not violent on our side. Um, we're just not. So the right wing or the Trump supporters are plugged into these very um, extremist, militant groups. So even though there was a great switcheroo, the only thing that happened on this side is I had to, it gave me a lot of work because I had to keep answering these panic questions about why Merrick Garland was not announcing whether there was an investigation. So it was a kind of pain in the neck, but there was no threats against people's lives. People weren't dying. But as soon as Trump and the all of the right-wingers began attacking the DOJ, now you've got a call to violence. And I think that that was what uh, Merrick Garland reacted to mostly. I mean, he said he was furious about these un, you know, unwarranted attacks on the DOJ. Really, what Trump did this past week was the same way that he directed all that violence and anger against Congress and Pence. Now he directed it against the FBI and the DOJ. So it's very dangerous. Yeah. And only one side, as you point out, only one side is radicalized to violence. Um, one side is very good at complaining, um, but that is not the same thing as bringing a military group or arming yourself against whoever your perceived enemy of the day is. I think we have to remind people that it's not the responsibility of the Department of Justice to reveal details of investigations to the public, whether you're a Trump supporter or against Trump. It's not the Department of Justice job to do that. They don't talk about ongoing investigations and they owe us no information. Garland pointed out at the press conference that a lot of their work by necessity is conducted out of the public eye. They do that to protect our constitutional rights and protect the integrity of investigations. Long-standing departmental rules and ethical obligations, he said, prevent me from providing any further details, which is why he didn't even answer questions at his press conference. He took full responsibility for the decision to search Mar-a-Lago, that he personally approved it, but he said, I'm not taking any more questions because that is not my job. That now, makes... he's also been, he's been saying these same things for a year. For so long. But the Trump critics didn't hear it. Or they, they thought, yeah, 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 it's all words. It's all blah, blah, blah. Or things, yeah. or they argued to me that, well, he's, yeah, he's sticking to rule of law, but you can't stick to the book when it's burning. And, you know, what, whatever they were arguing that he said all these same things, the way you save rule of law is with rule of law. The yeah. way you save democratic institutions is to preserve the integrity of democratic institutions. And people actually called me, they think it's a bad, bad word. They call me an institutionalist. What? Um, Terry? Oh, oh, gosh, I am. But no. democrat democratic institutions are what makes a democratic republic. And so he's been saying these things. And so what was really interesting, back to the switcheroo, what was really interesting was all of a sudden now it makes sense to people. But it made sense to people because now releasing too much information at this point will help Trump now that he knows there's a criminal investigation. It lets him know where they're looking, what to look for, how to defend which himself. To which witnesses to intimidate. Witnesses to intimidate. <laughs> <laughs> so so now, that, now that everybody knows that there is a criminal investigation, now they understand why it has to happen offstage. If all the witnesses know what the other witnesses are saying, then they coordinate their stories. If you don't right. know who's if you don't know who's in there and you don't know what they're saying, then you're if you want to lie, you're at a huge disadvantage. Because, Which goes you know, back to your big switcheroo, right? Because the people that were calling for more information are now like, oh, you can be quiet now. You can say nothing now <laughs> because we can see that you're doing something. So now do it by the book. Do it by the book. Now they're all institutionalists. And the people that want to know are the people that want to get their stories straight so that they can have the best defense. Now, as far as the search itself and talking about defense, there have been a number of what you have called ludicrous defenses coming out of Team Trump and what was found. Do you want to go through those with me? The ludicrous defenses that we've been hearing so far? <laughs> yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty silly. <laughs> okay, so the first one was evidence was planted by the FBI. Oh, that was the first. That's good, right? Because now you just told us that they're going to find evidence. So the thing about a search is you don't really know if they're going to find what they're looking for. Although they, they were pretty sure. In this case, they made sure it was there before they went in because this is... <laughs> Let's call it very high profile. How's that for an understatement? Okay, very good. Very high profile. So, but when 
if somebody gets a, if they think you've got something illegal and they've got probable cause to believe that you have something illegal in your home and they know they can't really ask you for it because they're just like toss it into the fireplace. Um, so they come in to get it. Now, did they find it? That's always a question. Did they find what they were looking for? Well, we knew immediately that they found it because Trump said they planted it. <laughs> so, so, and I heard that now. I, I told you last time I was here, I do, I do defense. Um, I'm on the defense side of criminal law. And the thing about they planted it is that's really hard <laughs> to prove because um, there's things called the chain of custody and there's everything is taken care of. Now, yes, there have been in our history some occasions where the police have not always behaved the way they're supposed to, Right. Yes, but it's a lot easier to plant a dime bag of cocaine or whatever a dime bag actually is because I'm <laughs> such a square. Um, but it's a lot easier to exactly. plant drugs on one guy who's on the side of the road than it is to plant top secret evidence you have no access to into and an ex-president's house. <laughs> right, I ridiculous. mean, like you don't have access to it to begin with, so I don't know how you're right. planting it, right? Right. So when he said that, that just immediately, I mean, it was a dumb thing to say. Um, and then, of course, all of his minions picked it up. But immediately what you hear in that is, okay, well, you don't have to worry that they went and they didn't find anything. They obviously found um, some pretty shocking evidence. And then and then there was uh, everything they found has been declassified, which is also very interesting. If you planted information to know what was planted was also declassified. And not to mention the fact that the <laughs> statutes um, under that the statutes that were listed, classification has nothing to do with any of those statutes. So um, whether or not the material is classified, it ups the ante a bit. So if you're stealing things, you're stealing things. If you have documents you're not supposed to have, that you have do you have documents that's bad. But if you have documents you're not supposed to have, and they also happen to be nuclear secrets, then it just makes the theft so much worse. But it doesn't change the the what we call the elements of the crime, what they have to prove. So right, that was they've still stolen documents, whether they're just they're classified or declassified. And we should be really clear to people that. A sitting president can't just wave a magic wand and declare something declassified. Documents have to go through a review process and certain topics like nuclear programs, including communication for programs that might support nuclear deployment, um, can't be declassified by anyone, not even the president. Trump gave a Wait, lot and Trump's of people. Wait, not the president. Hold on. No, so he's not the president anymore anyway, so right? If Trump, yeah. if, Trump, if Trump could say, oh, I declassify everything, then Biden can reclassify it. <laughs> so so Trump says it's all declassified and Biden says, no, you're not the president. I classify it. I'm going to classify every single thing. You know, it's like this is so dumb, right? <laughs> it's so. really so dumb. And I think the thing is, is that he, here's where you have it, where you we put someone in charge of the country who never understood how the country worked to begin with. We put someone in charge of the country who never understood the chain of command. He gave a ton of people who shouldn't have had access to classified information access to it. When people like the Secret Service said, you know, this person, Jared Kushner, shouldn't have access to this information. And he was like, I say it should happen. And that's his prerogative as president. But he was obviously untrustworthy to begin with. I mean, there are presidents that continue to receive national security briefings after their president, but that has to be approved by the next president. In this case, Biden did not approve that because Trump was untrustworthy. And now we can see Biden was completely right in thinking that, right? Like right. the National Archives, which is who we're talking about here, they're the ones that have asked for this information. They're the ones that are saying it's missing. These guys take this secured documents thing really seriously, right? Down to the construction of the room and the lighting fixtures that are in the room of the classified documents. You can't just stick stuff in a room and then put a padlock on it and be like, oh, it's all safe now. That's not how any of this works at all. And we're starting with someone who was the top of the chain of command, who never understood, never respected, and never honored how any of this was supposed to work to begin with. Right. Exactly. And it, um, and the whole classification thing was just, it, it got everybody talking about something that didn't matter. Right. It was, a, it was, it was a just, I guess, in mystery writing, you would call it a red herring. Everybody was <laughs> like sort of you know, chasing after something. So we all chase our tails. Squirrel. Yeah. Right? Right. Squirrel, right. Squirrel. Um, exactly. That's better. So, and then the next one was Obama did it too. You want to do that one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he tries the Obama does it too. And then immediately the National Archives says, no, -uh, um, this is what happened with those documents. So actually the Na National Archives had control of the documents and it was ridiculous um, because Obama follows the rules. 
So that was that was a that was a short lived one. But what you see here is a pattern. And what was it was very interesting because you could see he was taken a bit by surprise. I think the no collusion was clever, and he had some time to think that one up because collusion doesn't is really a not a legal term. So you can always say no. When collusion. you're talking about when he had excuses for the Russia back to the Mueller thing. His whole thing yeah. was no no collusion, right. no collusion, because right. that was kind that of was a good sort of, excuse. That was sort of clever because he, he defined the he defined the term the way he wanted to, so that he could declare himself innocent, right? So that was kind of clever. But here you could see he didn't have any time to think something up, so he was like kind of throwing, you know, let's try this one, let's try this one, let's try this one. So you could see these ridiculous defenses coming out, rapid fire. One failed, so he tries another one. Um, was, yeah, like we just we just packed wrong. We were in a rush. It was kind of weird after January 6th. We threw some things in boxes. We didn't know. Whoops, my bad. Well, then why did you refuse to give them back? Yeah. No, yeah, ridiculous. Okay, so and just when we thought things couldn't get any weirder, we learned that uh, Trump or Team Trump contacted Merrick Garland personally with some sort of threat. What was that about? Yes. Oh, actually, that sort of links back to the switcheroo thing because okay. that was a... Some people asked me about that, what he was doing. It was really a, a silky, smooth mafia kind of uh, threat. It, you could see how he pressures people. And actually, I have some theories about that, like why he thought he could do this. So uh, one of his spokespeople contacted an official at the DOJ to pass a message to Merrick Garland from the former president. And the message went like this. He said, Trump's been talking to people that are really, really mad about this search. The temperature's really high. The fever's really high. What can I do to bring down the temperature? So basically, he sets the fire. Everybody's really mad. And now Merrick Garland is supposed to be intimidated by this. And this is the kind of thing that he's always done. Like things can get really bad. It looks really bad. Things can, this looks really terrible and violent. What can we do to fix it? Right. Like you caused the problem. Right, nice little DOJ you have here. Wouldn't it be a shame if people got really, really mad at you? Well, too bad if something happened to it, yeah. Right, and so, um, and that was shortly before um, Garland made his, you know, announcement. And um, it was also the same morning that somebody was killed trying to attack uh, an FBI office. So right. I think I see that along with um, the fact that when the, when, what Trump was basically trying to do was intimidate. And you could see how that would work. So what Trump can, is not understanding, and I think he, he it might be dawning on him now. I used to tell clients once in a while the, the um, cardinal rule of power struggles. Don't get into a power struggle with someone who has more power than you do. And this is something that a few of my clients needed to hear once in a while. I had a client once tell me he was going to go in and tell the judge a thing or two. And I was like, and no, you're not. So Trump has been in a lot of lawsuits. He's never been the subject of a criminal investigation. But in a lawsuit, it's civil in civil litigation, it isn't very civil, right? They threaten each other. They try to intimidate each other. You know, they're, they're two citizens in a court battle over basically money or whatever, right? But a, a criminal matter is not two equal litigants. A criminal matter is an individual, a citizen up against the government. Now, the government has all the power. What the citizen has is rights. And the reason you have rights is because the government has all the power. And so what Trump doesn't seem to understand is that he's a former president. He's just a citizen. And that Garland has government power. And so the kind of threats that might work against you know, there's been a lot of witness intimidation. We know about that from the J6 committee telling us that a lot of the witnesses who have been talking to the J6 committee, the, the congressional committee, have been intimidated. Cassidy Hutchison, I think, had to, a security detail. She had to go into hiding. I think she's still in hiding. Is she still? It's very, very sad. So this kind of intimidating is what Trump does. But he's never been in a criminal matter where the person of where his opponent is not his equal. In fact, he's a citizen and he's got rights that protect him, but Garland has government power. Now, one of the things that's sort of tricky here is he thinks if he wins the next election, he has government power. 
So, which is probably definitely true. So yeah. he's not, he's still not really seeing himself as um, a little citizen up against the government. And one of the reasons why people like me often go into defense work is because we want to represent the little person up against the government. So some, and I only represented indigents once I had my appellate practice going, people who couldn't afford to pay. And so there's this idealism that says, you know, when, when you're accused of a crime by the government, that they have all the power. They have a whole FBI to look to, to find things. They have, they can go into court and get a, a warrant to search you. And so that threat that Trump made, or that, that communication, even if you don't see it as a threat, what can we do to bring down the temperature? He's not understanding the power dynamics here. And um, I can tell you that so somebody with a criminal defense background is going, oh my gosh, like this is, you don't, you don't test out defenses in the media. Um, all of this can be used against you later. So these are all, some of these are admissions. Some of his- Yeah, no, he should use his right to remain silent, but he thinks he still has all the power. <laughs> well, that's why you have a right to- you have the right to remain silent because they can search your home. They can get your documents. Um, they used to be able to beat a confession out of you, which actually, basically, they beat confessions out of black men in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But And we put a stop to that, which is why you have a, a Fifth Amendment is now upheld as you really don't have to speak because forcing people to speak doesn't work real well. So he has a right to remain silent. He doesn't get that. But mainly what he doesn't understand is that there's a power imbalance here and he doesn't have it. And of course, I saw your face when I said, well, if he wins the next election, that's why this is so important because um, he is a former president who had government power and now he's a citizen being investigated by the Department of Justice. And so this attempt to threat threaten him shows you that he's... Will, that what Garland understands is that Trump is willing to call up these private militias and these angry people and create the kind of violence against the DOJ that he did on January 6th. Okay. So that feels like a good start at attacking the craziest week ever in presidential politics. So um, let's just take a little break to thank our sponsors for making this conversation possible. And we'll be right back after this with Terry Canefield. Okay. So our family received our first delivery of Splendid Spoon when I was away. My husband was thrilled because he was working so much that he didn't have time to think about his meals. And all of a sudden there was Splendid Spoon, a meal delivery service that comes ready to eat. You don't have to spend all your time cooking or putting it together. It's just right there for you to heat up. And it includes smoothies and juices and things that are there in your fridge, ready to drink when you need a healthy snack or a vitamin boost. When I got back from Toronto, there was still a bunch of juices left. And for me, juices are where it's at. Most of the time, I would rather be drinking a juice or a smoothie than eating almost any food. So this was perfect. And if you've listened to the podcast, I've said it before, that when Splendid Spoon approached us as a sponsor, I wasn't sure I should say yes because the meals are all plant-based and our family isn't vegetarian. But with delicious dishes like creamy mushroom and spinach noodles, coconut curry, and lemon wild rice and broccoli, I can't say that we've missed out on the meat all that much. I love the idea of incorporating healthier eating, but not having to cook or figure it out for myself. Splendid Spoon meals are shipped right to your door, ready to enjoy in minutes. It fits into any schedule and there's a meal plan for everyone. So stay well-fueled going into the new school year with Splendid Spoon. Get started today and save on an entire week of ready-made plant-based meals. Just go to splendidspoon.com slash politicsgirl for $50 off your first box when you subscribe. Take the work out of eating healthy with Splendid Spoon. That's $50 off at splendidspoon.com dot com slash politics girl. I can't say enough about our next sponsor. With base luggage, you can get chic, affordable travel bags and accessories that look good and are packed with function. These bags are so cool. They're wildly stylish, well-designed, and they've thought of all the bells and whistles that take a regular suitcase to an amazing suitcase. They have 360 degree gliding wheels, so they roll around without any effort, a cushioned handle that's super comfortable, a built-in weight indicator that tells you if you're over 50 pounds, washable bags for all your dirty clothes, and all the interior pockets you could ever need to keep your luggage organized. The luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and for shorter trips or for your carry-on, the Weekender is a bag that looks good, fits everything, and sits right on top of the other luggage. 
Right now, BASE is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash politicsgirl. Our family started with two weekender bags and two of the small travel bags, but we ended up ordering a larger suitcase right away because they all go together. The big one even has a hook to connect the little one to. Honestly, it's amazing. So if you're going to take the deal, personally, I'd order all three at once. Just go to basetravel.com slash politicsgirl for 15% off your first purchase. That's base, spelled B-E-I-S, travel.com slash politicsgirl. So much thought went into this luggage. I can't rave enough about it. Basetravel.com. What if I told you there was a new product out there that can tackle our negative impact on the climate just by using it once a day? There is, and believe it or not, it's a credit card. Like me, you might be terrified about the oncoming climate crisis, but feel like you don't really know what we can do to make a real difference or where to really start helping. Okay, we can get solar panels and buy electric cars, but those are big ticket items and not necessarily possible for everybody. There's laundry detergent made of corn cobs and toilet paper made out of bamboo and so many reusable things, which are worthwhile products, but you wonder how much of a difference they're really making. We know the biggest polluters are giant corporations, and aside from pushing for more legislation, the best we can do is try and offset the damage they're making. Aspiration Zero Credit Card wants to help with that. They believe you can crush your negative carbon footprint just by switching to their card. Aspiration Zero is the first credit card that fights climate change by planting trees every time you use it. It works like this. Aspiration Zero plants two trees with every purchase you make. And two trees soak up about the same amount of carbon dioxide from the air as the average American puts out in a day. And along with the reward of knowing you are turning buying a latte into part of saving the planet, Aspiration Zero gives you another kind of green reward, cash. Unlimited 1% cash back on all of your monthly purchases when you hit carbon zero for the month. Aspiration has already made a huge impact with clients using their card. They've already planted 75 million trees. So make your dollars make a difference. Apply for the Aspiration Zero credit card today and earn a $300 welcome bonus after spending $3,000 in the first 90 days. Apply right now at aspiration.com slash politicsgirl to go carbon neutral effortlessly and earn a $300 bonus. That's aspiration.com slash politicsgirl. The Aspiration Zero MasterCard is issued by Beneficial State Bank, pursuant to license by MasterCard International Incorporated. Good credit required, terms and conditions apply. Okay, so let's go on to the other question from your blog. Why does the GOP continue to defend Trump no matter what he does, right? It's the fact that no one can admit this man might have done something wrong. Like everyone else, every other thing has to be a liar except for this man, right? Despite all evidence to the contrary. Um, and this is what makes people think that Trumpism is a cult mentality, right? People are unable to break with the cult and will continue to vote against their own well-being of either their voters or their own well-being of their personal self just to own the libs or defeat the Democrats, right? You've pointed out that Harvard professor uh, Daniel Ziblatt, he talks about the conservative dilemma. And the conservative dilemma is that conservatives know that their economic and social policies are now deeply unpopular. So to win elections, the GOP has found a formula of weaponizing white rage, right? They invent enemies, they invent crises, and then they promise to protect their voters from those enemies and self-made crises. So what is that all about? Why do they continue to double down on this? What's interesting about that question is people from different disciplines will answer it differently. Okay. Um, so, for example, a psychologist will have one kind of an answer, a political psychologist will have one kind of an answer, a historian will have another answer. But I'm going to give you the sort of political legal answer to that is um, there's, a, there's actually two parts. One is that there are not enough voters to vote conservative. So by the time we got to the 50s and 60s, that was pretty clear that um, that's when we had sort of a, a shift in the parties. But what Reagan did is he brought in, sort of deliberately brought in this um, white rage so that the conservatives, what we call traditional conservatives, ended up getting enough votes to start winning elections by bringing in culture, people who were voting for cultural reasons. Like, like the religious right that happened during Reagan and the abortion one issue voter. Right. And right now, demographically, 
without Trump voters, the Republicans have really no chance of winning a national election. So, in, so there's really two things. One is they're, they're afraid um, to lose those voters. Now, a lot of these Trump voters were not voters before 2016. Trump sort of reached into these rural areas and turned some of these people into voters who were never really voters. Um, but in terms of who has been voters, we have this kind of demographic shift. So the Republican Party really is very white, um, and the Demo and the Democratic Party is very diverse. But with every year, our, and the Republican Party, the Fox viewership is older. So they're older, they're white, they're a very limited demographic. Where the Democratic demographic is in, is getting larger. So every year we get more diverse diversity. We get you know younger people are coming in, and so left alone. The Republicans are in big trouble demographically. So what Trump did was he saved the day and Mitt Romney lost, right, to, to Obama. And so what Trump did is he went into these rural areas and he turned these angry white militia kinds of people, these chauvinists, into voters. And, um, and so now because of these voters, they can have a chance again at a national election. And what DeSantis is trying to do is get Trump, those Trump voters so that's why there's an interesting dance between DeSantis and Trump, but they're stuck with catering to these voters. That's the first part. The, the second part, and this is what people have a hard time with, for a long time, people believed that, well, the reason Lindsey Graham was doing whatever Trump wanted was because he was compromised. Wrong. They prefer a Trump. Wrong. No, he likes what Trump stands for. Before Trump, that was unspoken, but... Lindsey Graham would rather have a Trump-style autocracy than a liberal democracy, where really everybody has an equal vote and the, and the demographics of the country keep changing so that these white guys are, not, are no longer minority holding power. And so they also like what Trump stands for, um, some of them who don't want to admit it. So they think they're supporting Trump because for those two reasons, they want his voters and they actually would prefer a Trump-style autocracy. Yeah. I mean, you recently quoted um, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who was just on this show, saying that there's no bridge too far for the GOP now. Once elites have made the authoritarian bargain with the leader, they will stick with him until the bitter end, no matter what he says or does. So the choice has been made. They can't reverse course now. They have accepted this anti-democratic means, authoritarianism, lawlessness as a bargain for power, and they're going to follow through. Which is, if one party's decided to abandon the rule of law for power, the other side has to work diligently to be by the book if we want to hold on to it, right? Right. One party, I, that's what I always say. If both parties abandon rule of law, it's gone. And the Republican Party obviously has. They, um, you know, there's just so many ways to explain it. One is that, the, that we had the New Deal in the 30s, which created a lot of fairness, right? The New Deal sort of brought up a lot of poor people and created our first middle class. It created a lot of agencies and a lot of regulations. That's really what the New Deal was, going back to the 30s. Roosevelt's New Deal was a set of regulations and um, creating fairness. That's how we got Social Security. We got workers' rights. We got the GI Bill. We got all kinds of things that created a strong middle class for the first time ever. And this created a large government. And the Republicans hate that. They hate those agencies. They hate the they hate those rules. Now what the rules do is prevent Well, they hate the bend towards fairness, right? And they to hate, making it more exactly. equal. Right. And they hate the fact that um, now prior to the New Deal, you could easily you could manipulate markets, you could um, cheat people, you could do all of these things. Um, but the the New Deal regulations prevented a lot of that cheating. And so right, so it it takes down the people who got rich, these corporate, these robber barons who got rich basically from cheating, it takes away their ability to cheat and raises up workers and allows people to go to college every, so more people can get an education. And then the civil rights, the civil rights and the women's rights movement, which actually happened because now the New Deal created our first middle class, but the African-Americans were left out. The civil rights movement tried to then try to include African-Americans and then the women's movement. So these created more government because the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, all of these things created more government 
to enforce these regulations to create more fairness. And the Republican Party is opposed to all of those things. Um, they want it all. They don't want rules. They want this sort of jungle thing where they say the best rises to the top, but really the people who cheat rise to the top. And so part of why they're lining up, lining up behind a lawbreaker is ever since, remember Reagan said the scariest words in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So they've been anti-government for decades. Now, you can either take the government apart bit by bit, dismantle it little by little, or you can bring in a wrecking ball. And Trump is a wrecking ball. And he is lying and cheating and breaking rules. They don't care because they don't think those rules should even be there. Because they have the ultimately they have the same goal, which is to dismantle the government. I mean, you said in your blog, it all comes down to what you think the purpose of government is, right? For many of us, we look at government's job to help people. We think fairness is possible. We think we should be creating policies that make more things fair. But there are people like you're talking about who have a completely different opinion of that, right? They think hierarchy is the natural order, right? That there are some people that belong on top and others who belong on the bottom. And the people with power and money have power and money because they deserve it. And the people that don't, don't. Well, we started as a hierarchy. The, the, at the founding of the nation, the idea was that we the people really was white, well-educated landowning men. And women didn't vote. White women had some rights, but they really didn't vote. But black, black people didn't have any rights. They weren't even citizens. And Native Americans had no rights at all. And so one way to see the course of our history is trying to include more and more people in We the People. So initially, it's a hierarchy. The 19th century was a strict hierarchy with white men at the top, black women at the bottom. And all the laws enforced that hierarchy. So what the laws did was enforce the hierarchy that black women were at the bottom. Rape of a black woman wasn't even recognized as a crime. And so even after the Civil War, they didn't own their own bodies. So the, so the laws reinforce this hierarchy. And then what's been happening is the progressives, the liberals, the fairness people, we've been trying to get rid of that hierarchy and create rules to get, make everybody equal. But what the Republican Party doesn't want to do is make everybody equal. That's why they don't like these urban areas where there are a lot of black voters. That's really what it's all about is holding on to white power. Um, and some of us who are white think it's great to share the power, right? So it's not like it's all whites against all minorities. The Democratic Party is a very diverse party, but the Republican Party is less and less diverse because they want to go back and hold on to the hierarchy. So the way you go back to the hierarchy is you get rid of all of these laws and regulations that have been put in place. So they are perfectly fine with Trump violating these kinds of laws because they don't, they'd rather have Trump and that kind of a government where whatever Trump says is the law because or put another way, they were ruled, they liked the law back when the laws benefited them. Yeah. Democracy was fine provided it was it it they stayed on top. But as soon as we started adding things like worker protection laws and minimum wage and social security and laws against insider trading and women's rights and civil rights, then it became a problem because it was no longer holding up the hierarchy. And so when they say things like defund the FBI, it's not that you're like, how does the law and order part are saying defund the FBI? It's like what it is, is defund the federal government who is trying to hold us back, who's trying to change the hierarchy. Exactly. We don't need it anymore, things like the FBI or the IRS, because they're holding the hierarchy back. They're trying to make things more fair, and that's not what we want at all. So instead of dismantling it piece by piece, you said they're like, sure, bring in the wrecking ball, just take the whole government down. We'll right. just do that now. Right. And, you know, they used to be sort of, you know, yeah, rule of law was fine because the laws reinforced the hierarchy. Right. And now the, the laws that we're, that, the Democrats, like, the, you know, the legislation that Biden has been passing creates more fairness. That's just what it does. It tries to even things out a little bit, give, give you know, make medicine affordable to everybody. Um, that's what they're trying to do. But even people who would benefit from Biden's legislation, they're still pro-Trump because they are afraid of letting go of that hierarchy. They'd rather have whatever position they have on it. 
Right. That's why they're trying to outlaw abortion and this kind of stuff. They're trying to take us back to a different place where a certain group of people were owed democracy and privilege and the rest of us weren't. And like poor white men, they benefit from white supremacist patriarchy, how they were seen compared to black men or how they were allowed to treat women. Right. And that worked for them. And nowadays, those same people are supposed to treat women and people of color with respect. And that system doesn't really work for them because they can no longer cash in on the special privilege of being a white man. So what is their special privilege? They don't like that. Right. I think it's even a little more practical than that. OK, they can't they can't get women anymore. So women don't need them. Women don't. So young women don't need men. And this is very scary. Well, they don't need so crappy men. I'll tell you that. They don't. I mean, they, and they're fine with like, they can go get jobs. They don't have to have. They can babies. have their own credit cards. They can, they have can their pay own their own cards, bills. And they don't need men. And so some of these yeah. guys, so back in the old days, any man could get in, could get a woman. Yeah. There was no such thing as what's this in cell thing. There was no such thing as that because women literally couldn't say no. Women had to get married. And the rape laws actually protected the man from, oh, a wealthy white man from false accusation. But if a girl was out by herself, oh my gosh, she's supposed to protect the good. So if a guy grabs her and rapes her, it's her fault. So men could get women. And now this new generation, you know, the um, one of the insurrectionists, I can picture him, but I can't, um, I can't remember his name, but he had this microphone. There was a um, a video of him January 6th in front of the Capitol. And he was saying, I am a, a Western chauvinist and proud of it. And I was like, yeah, he want, there's, they're icky guys. Would you want to go? They're icky. And they can't, women don't want them. <laughs> and so I they don't need them they anymore. Don't need Men them. have to be worthy of spending time with a woman when and this before is very they just could just be. You know, when you read these 18th century novels, you can see like the girls had no choice. And so this new world, this new world where women have equal rights and a black man can be president um, and and beat somebody like Mitt Romney, um, they, it's just inconceivable to them. And it's all very, very scary and frightening. And it's um, and it's a shame. But that's I think that's a, a huge driver is this resentment of what they think they're losing. Yeah, which in many ways they kind of are if they don't evolve. So is it possible Trump just goes down for simple theft? <laughs> I mean, do you think it's worth it? I, I like listen. He's done the thing. It's not like it's not it's not complicated to say he took a thing he wasn't supposed to take, and when he was asked to give it back, he didn't give it back. I mean, that's it's hard to defend that, right? But like, do you think it's worth charging him for something limited compared to what he did overall? I mean, there are people who are in jail for far less than what the FBI already has that they found at Mar-a-Lago. But there are critics who are concerned that if Trump goes to jail for something that feels small, comparative to, say, let's say, insurrection or seditious conspiracy, that the charges may just be seen as politically motivated and he could still run for office. And now the perception will probably be different if the records in question pertain to serious national security breaches or, say, nuclear secrets. But what do you think about that? Well, these Plain are two theft. separate investigations happening. Okay. So... The matter that was there's a, the matter that was referred to the DOJ by the archives is what resulted in this search, and that's really not connected to the January sixth. Right. And two so one of the things that was sort of interesting is everybody was shouting that they needed Garland to acknowledge that Trump was the target of a January sixth investigation. But once they found out he's the target of something else, then they were happy that he's the target of something. That doesn't mean that the other isn't continuing. And I think at this point, we can probably take Merrick Garland's word when he says that anybody, he's going to get anybody who has criminal liability connected to January 6th. The thing about the January 6th, though, is it's hard. It's a harder case to prove because so much of what happened happened behind closed doors. I mean, it's easy to get the people who stormed the Capitol because they're on videotape and you've got to, you know, they film themselves committing crimes. It was pretty easy. But what Trump and his pals did was pretty much behind closed doors. The planning was behind. And so it's a lot harder to get the evidence for that. And it's also just a lot harder to prove it. 
um, just because of the nature of the crime. And some crimes are, you know, a, a financial crime that happens in a mansion behind a big gate and nobody is around for a quarter of a mile. That's a harder crime to catch than a crime that happens, say, in an apartment building with thin walls and people are mad at you and turn you in. And so so the January 6th is a much more difficult um, it's much more difficult to put the evidence together where the elements, it is basically theft, although it's still espionage and it's mishandling, it's obstruction. They're going after him on obstruction and what's called the espionage, but it's really uh, carelessness with national um, defense secrets. And so I think that the this might come first or it's further along. I'm not sure what the strategy would be um, with with sort of in, um, indicting one thing while something else is working through. Um, but also the January 6th matter is also pretty far along in terms of who's been talking to the grand juries about this. So they're entirely separate. And one thing, if you remember Manafort when he was charged, Manafort did a lot of really horrible things for a long time. And he was charged basically with financial crimes. It's, it's easier to prove. Once he was charged with these financial crimes, people stopped complaining about the fact that he did these other things he wasn't charged with. So there's kind of different kinds of evidence. So there's testimonial evidence, which someone comes in and they testify. And that's called testimonial evidence. It's good evidence. The problem is that the jury can decide not to believe it, especially if two people give different stories, then the jury decides. But with, with evidence that's in the documents, the jury can't ignore it. So it is what it is. It is. And so on Manafort's jury, there was a, a strongly pro-Trump person who said, I had no choice but to convict because juries cannot go against the evidence. A, a jury is a fact finder. The jury doesn't decide the law. The judge applies the law, but the jury determines the facts. And if a jury completely goes against facts and there's no evidence to support what the jury did, there's actually, you could appeal that. It's a substantial evidence appeal. Um, but documentary evidence is much more solid. And so the, the Mar-a-Lago case, the documents case, it's just going to be easier to prove. I don't believe that means the other won't also be be brought. But you're at this, some of these, um, with the search warrant, I think some of these could be like 20 year prison sentence is huge. I mean, and I think for Trump, like, five to 10 years would be a life sentence if that happened. And there'll be more people involved. It's not like he knew exactly what document to take and knew how to store it in the room by himself and he was doing it all alone. I mean, there's got to be people, other people involved. But we've also, that when I said the switcheroo, it wasn't just the fact that now it's clear that Merrick Garland has actually got the nerve to go, to go after Trump. We've also really learned that things have been progressing with January 6th. What's annoying is every time something happens, like we find out that Cipollone talked to the DOJ or, or, or talked to it, yeah, <laughs> then, then the newspapers say, indicating a widening. No, it's not. It's indicating that now we know about it. There's a lot of steps before you get there. So it's, I have no idea what the time frame is going to be. But at this point, I would have to say that I, I think I'm taking Merrick Garland at his word. That yeah, if he says it's he on the move. <laughs> it's on the move. And what do you say to the people who are concerned, rightly so, that this far right Trump Supreme Court is going to exonerate him and all of his associates if they end up being charged and convicted of offenses? Right. What are your thoughts on that? Because people are already panicking. He's going to they're going to get all the evidence. He's going to go to jail and then it's going to be overturned by his own Supreme Court. What's your thought on that? Well, that's kind of silly um, because. So the Supreme Court, what, the Supreme Court doesn't find facts. You don't have a new trial at the Supreme Court. Actually, people don't know that because I do yeah, People appeal, don't know that. I was like, you might want to start from scratch okay, here, Terry. I'll start from scratch. <laughs> okay, so, so, so I did appeals. That's what I did. And my clients did not get a new trial on appeal. What happens on appeal is that you, you look to see if there were any reversible errors or if the law was misapplied. It's also the place on appeal to decide that the laws that were being followed are not constitutional. So that's how the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That's how um, in 1954, the Supreme Court said racial segregation is unconstitutional. We had a lot of, in, in the end of 1896, the Supreme Court said that segregation was constitutional. The Supreme Court does not very often overturn rules, and they only overturn rules 
in something really major. So when you appeal, there has to be an error made at the trial level, and the error has to be significant enough to overturn the case. Now, what often happens on appeal is I might win the appeal, but then what that meant is that it gets sent back for the trial court to do it over without the mistakes. So if the, if the judge keeps out evidence that would help or, or allows in bad evidence or the judge makes some bad calls, those are appealable issues. So how does that work with the Supreme Court? They had have to prove that something had gone wrong in the first place? Well, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, it would, it, there's actually on the Supreme Court website it, what kinds of cases they take. They don't just take a case because they want to. I, this one seems, seems like to. This one seems to. Well, they take a case that has that has national significance, that has constitutional implications. So that's how they got Roe v. Wade. So if it has constitutional implications, they'll take it. If there's a split of authority among the appellate divisions, they'll take it. But the idea that they're going to let Trump get away with crimes just doesn't make any sense. They've ruled against him in all of those broad election fraud cases. They ruled against him in the executive privilege stuff. Yeah. So they're not, I really just, the, the Supreme Court's not going to do that. The, okay, let me put another, the Supreme Court doesn't care about Trump. I think they do want a kind of a Christian nationalism. Definitely. But that doesn't need, they don't need Trump for that. Right. Like, it's like they're- He's not the only, they can sacrifice him and still get what they want. If he is convicted of crimes at the trial level and it's upheld on appeal and it goes to the Supreme Court, they'd have to say something wrong with the law. So they'd have to say, no, no, presidents can take things home. That'd be yeah. silly, right? Yeah. So for an appeal to succeed, there has to be court or prosecutorial, uh, prosecutorial error, error, right? And in this or, case, right. there wouldn't be. And they're already walking a fine line with legitimacy, so they're not going to do that. And even if their goal is to have Christian theocratic autocracy, they can get that through DeSantis or they can get that through, you know, Josh Hawley or somebody like that. Just suppose Trump is convicted of stealing documents from the government. Well, in order to let Trump off, they have to say it's okay to steal documents. And that's a tough thing to sell. Yeah, right. They don't make they don't make a law for one person. It's contrary to Supreme Court jurisprudence to say, I'm going to make a special rule for you that doesn't apply to other people. Mm. That just it, it just doesn't happen like that. So they'd have to say that the law under which he was convicted is not constitutional. And right. there's no grounds for that. They'd have to say Congress doesn't have a right to say that you can't steal government papers. Well, that would be silly. So yeah. I'm not worried about the And Supreme even if Court. they are corrupt, which I think they are, I think they're totally compromised, they can still get what they want without defending Trump. I think one of the questions that's sort of a little more interesting that kept coming up was um, prior to this coming out, the Trump critics, a lot of people actually believed that if that we needed to indict and prosecute Trump in order to save democracy and in order to heal the nation and make everything right. And I kept trying to explain that that's not going to happen like that. That, And I think now people see that. I think a lot of people are just sort of invested in, they want to see a particular result. They want to see Trump in prison. And if Trump isn't in prison, nothing matters. And we have to get past that. What matters is saving rule of law, saving democracy, bringing these investigations happening the way they should. We don't know what's going to happen at a, at a trial. You don't know what a jury is going to do. What we have to be sort of rooting for at this stage is for these investigations to be done in a manner that's airtight. The evidence is solid. Juries really have no choice because the evidence is so, so solid. And one way to do that is with enough cooperating witnesses. And so it's, the goal is to preserve rule of law and I right. think this question of, well, what if the Supreme Court overturns it? First off, it's one of those questions that kind of drive me nuts because Supreme Court won't. But also, that's not what we should be worried about. We should be worried about, because if the Supreme Court is willing to do that. We're done. We're done because that's just not how rule of law works. And I just can't. Too many, too many of the justices were not willing to overturn the election for Trump. They could have done it right then. And this goes back to your idea that there's no legal remedy to a political problem, that the only thing that will stop these people is a landslide loss in future elections, right? If we want a more democratic society, we have to elect more Democrats in 2022 and 2024 because the Republican Party has completely abandoned democracy. We're not going to get a more fair democratic society using the courts. The courts 
uphold the rule of law and we have to help them do that by, by upholding the rule of law ourselves, but we can't get what we seek through the courts. We can only get what we seek through a more democratic government. The bigger worry isn't that the Supreme Court's going to say, give Trump a get out of jail free card. That's not the worry. The worry is that somebody like DeSantis is going to get elected and pardon him. The, the worry is that the Republicans are going to win the House and the Senate in this coming election. That's the worry. Yeah. And then shut down the J6 committee and then shut down any investigations into him and totally take over the Justice Department and do subpoenas for Adam Schiff and everyone yeah, on the J6 they could, committee. Yeah, they could be a pain in the neck. Yeah, so, impeach so really Biden for right. being successful. Right. So a, a much more legitimate worry is that somebody like Trump wins the presidency legitimately. And I mean that we don't do our work so that enough people go to the polls and vote for him after everything right. we know, or in spite of everything we know, because of everything we know, they still say we want Trump. And um, the thing about a democracy is that at, at any given time, enough people can vote to end it. That's why, right, it's a, it's a political problem. And as long as enough people come out in these elections so that Trump doesn't come back into the White House, that's my worry. Not not the Supreme Court. I mean, listen, we want to see Trump held accountable for his crimes. I know you hate the word accountable, but we want to hold <laughs> Trump responsible for what he's done. We want his enablers to be tied to him like an anchor around their neck. You know, they can't skate if he goes down. And we have to make sure that the next Trump doesn't get elected legally because he will just reverse all the problems to begin right. with. We have to accept the fact that one party in America has decided they are anti-democratic and they would rather go down an authoritarian, white, Christian, national path. And we have to say, that's not where we're going. We're not going down that path and we're going to organize and we're going to vote and we're going to do all the things that defeat you over and over and over and over again. And if we get our indictments and our people in jail at the same time, wonderful. But the thing we really need to focus on is getting Democrats and people who believe in democracy elected. That's what we need to focus on because we are not the Department of Justice. We have to let them do their job and support them, but we are voters. We are pro-democracy voters and we have to vote and make sure that people like DeSantis don't remain in power or don't get into power and all of the little minions below them. That's right. That's the scary part is that even with everything we know about Trump, 40, 45% of the people would still vote for him. That's, that's the part that scares me. And there are enough people who do not want to see a Trump-type person come back. Um, I, would, I would hope they're going to get to the polls. It's pretty important. Well, it, it's the most important, honestly. Right. And thank you so much for joining me today, Tara. Your insight and your calm is always essential when it comes to this stuff. Um, I hope you're feeling vindicated, considering you were right all along. And as the indictments, which I believe are coming, are going to start coming in, I hope you'll come back and talk to me again to make some sense of what's happening next. Anytime. But in the meantime, organize and get people registered to vote. That's right. And, and be a poll worker. And be a work, poll worker. Yeah. Work, work Don't let Steve Bannon's whole army do it. Yes. We need people... Be an election judge. You know, you can be the person who counts the votes. Cool, right? Cool. <laughs> thanks, Terry. Talk to Thank you, you soon. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. So that was Terry Canfield, author, lawyer, and absolutely brilliant legal mind, reminding us that no matter what happens with the Justice Department, and I think a lot is going to happen, so hold on, we can't use the law to solve political problems. At the end of the day, if we want to live in a democratic society with a rule of law, we have to vote for people who believe in democracy and the rule of law. And then we have to whoop these authoritarian wannabe Christian nationalist criminals and criminal enablers at the polls. What has become of the Republican Party has to suffer such landslide losses that they have no choice but to abandon this anti-democratic course of action. What happens with Trump is absolutely secondary to what happens to our country. And I would like to thank Terry for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and register someone to vote. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.